Good morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is Matt Quintana. I'm the pastoral intern here. I'm currently a, a student over at Multnomah Biblical Seminary. I'm training to go into ministry in the future, Lord willing. I don't have a lot to, to do in the summer. It's my break, so pastors and elders have given me some opportunities to preach, which is fun. Uh, they give me the super hot day, which is uh, make, make it interesting. Uh, as we, we begin, I want you to think with me, if you will, about words. We all have different ideas that we associate with individual words. A certain word for one person might have uh, a negative connotation. For another, it might be positive or neutral. Oftentimes these things are determined by personal experience or age or culture, or education, what have you. Take, for example, the word ocean. When I say that word, what comes to mind? For some of you, it might be trips to the Oregon coast with your family, walks along the beach in the sun, splashing in the water, building sandcastles. You have a positive association with the ocean. For others, you might have a more negative one. Maybe you can only think of the, the cold, the wet waves, the rain, the constant wind. Maybe you had a scary encounter when you were younger with the ocean, and that is now permanently linked to that word. What about someone who has never seen an ocean before? They don't know anything about it from their own experience, and so their connotation's probably neutral. Well, why open, open a sermon talking about this? Well, when it comes to reading the Bible, which is a big book full of words, we likewise have a lot of baggage that we bring to the text. We all have preconceived notions or presuppositions, certain associations that we are going to bring to any given passage, and that's going to shape how we understand it. We need to be aware of that as we read, since... We may make certain associations with words or concepts that may or may not be helpful. And always we are attempting to let God's word in scripture define the terms for us so that we understand what God is attempting to say to us through his word. This morning we'll be in 1 Peter 1 as Matt read a few moments ago. I've entitled the sermon, Live, uh, Live as Hopeful, Holy, and Reverent Exiles. Those three words, hopeful, holy, and reverent, are drawn from the passage today. They're all significant themes throughout the Bible and even the book of 1 Peter. But I think, unfortunately, we often have some wrong ideas about what these words mean. Take, for example, the word hopeful. What comes to mind when you think of hope? In our society, hope is usually about just wanting something to be true. I hope it doesn't get too hot during our service this morning, or I sure hope that I get this promotion at work. Generally, the things we hope for don't have uh, a certainty of coming to pass. Often there, there might even be only a slight or even zero chance that these things actually happen. If someone is hopeful, we'd like to think that they're characteristically optimistic. They're 
upbeat. They, they like to look at the glass as half full. Those connotations of the word hope are, are different than what the Bible means when it talks about hope. Or what about holy? If you've been to church for a while, you've no doubt heard that word. It's used all throughout the Bible. Many of us associate holiness with moral purity and not sinning. Perhaps you've heard that believers are supposed to be holy, which is what our passage says today, and maybe that just seems like an unrealistic ideal. Surprisingly, the word is also quite popular in secular culture. I typed the word holy into Google, and I received suggestions for the Holy Roman Empire, the Holy Grail, a song by Florida Georgia Line, a taco restaurant in Portland, a wireless mechanical drone, and a brand of special keys that can be purchased for customized computer keyboards. The word is used in common phrases like holy moly or even combined with other words that I won't say here. None of these things are related to how scripture frames the concept of holiness. Finally, consider the word reverent. This has to do with showing honor or respect. Maybe you associate it with someone who is extremely devout or maybe overly serious or a pious buzzkill. The word for reverence in the Bible is commonly the word fear. We don't often think of fear as a good thing, though. It's usually something that we feel when a situation is dangerous or concerning. We all have things that we're afraid of, whether it's spiders or heights or the dark or being alone. The Bible frequently talks about the fear of the Lord, so maybe we should add that to the list. When compared to the common ways that our world thinks about hope, about holiness, and about reverence, God's word presents us with something drastically different. As we walk through the passage today, we'll need to be careful to hear what these ideas are actually about in the Bible. Hope, holiness, and fear are all very good things. What we'll find this morning is that the main idea of this passage is that God's people should live in hope, holiness, and reverence because of what has been accomplished in Christ. That's our truth statement for today, so I'll say it again. God's people should live in hope, holiness, and reverence because of what has been accomplished in Christ. In our text today, there are three main imperatives or commands. That means that in these nine verses, there are three main commands for us, and everything else is explanation and argument for those three commands. The first one is in verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The second is in verse 15. Be holy in all your conduct. And the third and final imperative is in verse 13. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So hope, holiness, and fear or reverence. The author's focus in this passage is on these three commands. Again, hence our true statement, God's people should live in hope, holiness, and reverence because of what has been accomplished in Christ. 
So let's now unpack what these three commands mean. As we move into this first one in verse 13, we're hit with this word, therefore. I've heard Greg say many times, you always want to ask what the therefore is there for. That's good counsel. Uh, Because here, Peter, he's starting the body of his letter. He has just finished this introductory greetings and then this prayer, uh, this blessing. And he begins with this word, therefore, which is telling us that what he's about to say doesn't stand on its own. This therefore rounds off everything that he's just said in verses 1 through 12. It implies that he's now about to tell us how these things apply to our lives. In this opening section, Peter offered a reflection on the gospel. He was celebrating what the Father has done for believers through the Spirit and in Christ. And so he now moves to exhorting God's people to live holy and godly lives in light of the grace, the gospel he has just talked about. It's this way throughout the New Testament. The uh, commands, how we should live our lives, is built off of and follows from the indicative or what God has done in Christ. It's not the other way around. And so in light of this grace, in light of God's mercy and the gospel that he's celebrated, the first thing that Peter instructs God's people to do is this. In verse 13, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So believers must fix their hope upon the grace that they will receive at Christ's second coming. Though we experience some of the benefits of salvation and grace from the Father in the present, Peter tells us to orient our, orient our lives towards the future, the grace which we have not yet received, that which is yet to come. By grace, Peter has in mind future blessings and rewards, the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for us in heaven, verse 4. The salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, verse 5. The praise, glory, and honor that we will receive from Christ for our endurance in the faith, verse 7. And the final salvation of our souls, the end result of our faith, verse 9. This is the grace of God. All these things, the grace of God for Peter is the eschatological or the future blessings that are in store for those who faithfully follow Christ. Let's think a little further about what it means to set our hope on something. Peter is telling those who are enduring suffering uh, to set their hope on the grace that is to come. Is he telling them that they just need to hope for the best? Does he want us as believers to just have some sort of pious optimism and just trust that everything will work out okay? Scripture shows us that hope means possessing a deep-seated conviction that God will make good on his promises. To hope is to possess a full assurance that what God has said will happen and that what is hoped for will most certainly come to pass. J.A. Packer was one of the most prolific theologians and authors of the last hundred years. Uh, Just last week, he went to be with the Lord at the age of 93. 
He said this about the distinctiveness of Christian hope. Optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving and is often no more than whistling in the dark. Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promises of God. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. In this verse, Peter qualifies this command to set your hope on the future grace. He qualifies it with two instructions that illustrate how believers are to go about doing this. He says first that it's by preparing your mind for action. In Greek, uh, the phrase is by girding up the loins of your mind. The imagery is of someone who had these long flowing garments and they tuck them into their belt in order to uh, work and run and be able to move. A modern equivalent might be rolling up your sleeves. It's a vivid metaphor of mental alertness and planning. Before the exodus from Egypt, the Israelites were commanded by God to eat the Passover meal with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, Exodus 12, 11. And they were to do this as they prepared for God's work of salvation and deliverance. Similarly, Christians are not to await Christ's coming with idle wishfulness and unfounded optimism, but with a mental resolve to live in such a way so as to manifest this living hope which they have received. The second way that Christians are to fix their hope is by being sober-minded. This sober-mindedness refers to self-awareness or control that allows one to think and act fully on one's true nature in Christ. This goes hand-in-hand with the previous instruction, for the mind can only be determined and ready if it's not intoxicated by worldly cares or pleasures. What is necessary then is unclouded judgment, self-control, and a mind that is prepared to resist anything that might distract from the hope set on Christ's future revelation. God's people must set or fix their hope upon Christ. The believer is to resolve to have their entire life oriented around this unshakable hope rather than allowing their circumstances to dictate their faith. It is by means of mental preparation and discipline that Peter says one is able to fully set their hope on God's promises. I wonder if this is true of us. Can you say confidently that your hope is set fully, completely, utterly upon our promises in Christ? Peter's vision of the Christian life is thoroughly eschatological. It's forward-oriented. It looks ahead at what is to come. How quick are we to lose focus as we run the, the race of life? We so often look straight down at our feet rather than ahead to the prize that is to come. 
from first to last, Christianity is about hope. It's forward-looking and forward-moving, and therefore it transforms and revolutionizes the present. This first command was essentially live in hope. And so next comes Peter's second imperative. It's in verse 15. He says, be holy in all your conduct. We see the negative counterpart of this in verse 14. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And all of this is grounded at the beginning of verse 14 in this description of believers as obedient children. In verse 16, a line is quoted from the book of Leviticus in chapter 19. You shall be holy for I am holy. And this offers support for Peter's command. It helps to establish the principle that holiness should dominate the Christian life. The big point that he's making here is that setting one's hope fully on Christ's coming should result in living a holy life now. As you look ahead to the future, your life in the present is different. But what does it mean to be holy? This is an important question, and before we can comprehend all that Peter's saying here, it needs to be addressed. It's very common to hear holiness defined as set apart. When it comes to God, this would mean that God is set apart from all evil, that is, he's morally pure. Also, it would imply his infinite excellence above all created things. And so in this view, holiness is understood as roughly equivalent to purity and transcendence. However, I don't think that's what the Bible basically means by holy. I think that fundamentally holy is something more than being set apart. The most basic meaning of holy in the Bible is devoted or consecrated. Let me briefly sketch how this applies to both God and then to everything and everyone else. God, in his very essence, is holy. Throughout the scriptures, Yahweh's defining characteristic is not his love or his wrath or his justice, but his holiness. Holy is a term for his status or his quality and essence as the one and only sovereign creator of all. At the center of his very being, Yahweh is holy. God himself sets a standard for holiness. His holiness is experienced as both his power and his presence. might be helpful to think of it like a fire. God's holiness is both life-giving and enriching and energizing, and it's also dangerous. As holy, Yahweh is completely and utterly devoted. Devoted to what? Within the scripture, the Lord's holiness operates within the context of covenant relationships. It expresses his total commitment So God is completely dedicated to his covenants, to his promises, his justice, mercy, love, righteousness, glory, and faithfulness. This is what it means that Yahweh is holy. It's not that he is simply 
totally other or that he's separate from all and uh, above everyone else, even though those things are true. As holy, he is fully devoted to being who he is as God. He's fully devoted to being who he is as God, the just, righteous, gracious, and faithful covenant-keeping creator. Not only is Yahweh holy, Yahweh makes holy. He consecrates people and places and times and things. When someone or something is holy, then it means that they belong to God completely and fully. To be one of God's holy people does not mean that you're morally perfect or set apart all from sin and wickedness. It simply means that you belong to God, that you are fully committed to him. There's important implications of this, which I think we can now explore. I'll read verses 14 through 16 again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, Instead, like the Holy One who called you, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That opening phrase, as obedient children, is important. Because Peter is not commanding his readers to become obedient children. Nor is he saying that Christians are simply like obedient children. Those who have faith in Christ are obedient children because they have been begotten by God, adopted as his children, rebirthed into newness of life, to a living hope. Verse 3, believers are not summoned to carry out God's will on their own strength. Instead, their obedience flows from the truth that they are indeed God's children. The fact that a Christian has been born again, though, necessarily implies a drastic change in their way of life. Their new life and identity are characterized by knowledge of Christ, devotion to him. This is why that Christians are not to be conformed to their former desires, as verse 14 says. The ungodly passions and practices that dominated their, their life before Christ must be spurned and rejected. To not do so would be to conform to ungodliness and would be unfitting for one who is devoted or consecrated to the Lord. True holiness, true devotion to the Lord is reflected by living as one who indeed, indeed belongs to Christ in all things. Again, the pattern for holiness is God himself. And what a blessing this is, because we cannot consecrate ourselves or make ourselves holy through good works. Instead, it takes the calling of the Holy One, verse 15, the calling of the Holy One who powerfully draws us to himself and makes us his people. Holiness is not about what we do, but about what God does to us and through us. Later in Chapter 2, verse 9, Peter calls God's people a holy nation. Holy is not what we are to become or what we are to make ourselves be. Holy is what we are in Christ. What Christians are called to do then is to maintain the holiness that God has already given them. We are to keep holy what God has made holy. 
Our aim is to avoid desecrating what God has sanctified and consecrated. And so while being holy does not mean inherently that you're pure, purity is a result of being holy in in the biblical sense. One of the main truths that Leviticus teaches is that all holiness extends to every sphere of life. Holiness extends to food, to clothing, to calendars, to sex, to health, to agriculture, to business, relationships, and laws. When he quotes it here, Peter shows that Leviticus just so happens to be relevant and important for instructing Christians in godliness. Might come as a shock to you. Next time you read Leviticus, it's relevant for your life as a Christian. Just like Israel, as God's people, we are to be holy in all our conduct, in every area of our lives. The application of this truth for us looks different than it did for Israel or for the Christians who first uh, read Peter's letter. But the imperative remains the same. Be holy as Yahweh is holy. So our first two commands were live in hope and live in holiness. Now we move on to the third, live in fear or in reverence. Verse 17 says, conduct yourselves in reverent fear throughout the time of your exile. The final command here is very much connected to the previous one. God's people are to be holy in all their conduct and they're to conduct themselves in fear. It's the same word. Before laying out the command, Peter expresses a condition. He says, if you call upon the fa- uh, as father, the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, it's a sweet and wonderful privilege of the Christian to call upon God as father. However, this should never be taken for granted, which is what Peter is getting at. For the same father is righteous, He's the righteous and impartial judge, the judge before whom every single person will give account. God will judge mankind for their works, says this verse. The evaluation of one's life will reveal whether or not the person was truly begotten by God. And so there's a balance to be walked here. We don't only enjoy a tender, loving relationship with the Father. We we also cannot presume upon his grace. Since we have a special and privileged relationship with him, it is all the more urgent that we remember who the Lord is and display the reverence that he deserves. Balancing this tension helps us to conduct ourselves in a healthy fear or reverence. What Peter has in mind is not a life of utter terror and dread, Abject terror and fear certainly does not fit with the joy and confidence that is assured to Christians and is also commanded of them. So we need to understand his instructions here as calling us to embrace a healthy and necessary reverence and respect for the God of the universe. This kind of fear does not contradict our joy in having God as our Father as well. So for how long do believers need to live in holy fear? Peter says that they're to do this during their time of exile. This picks back up on the theme that was introduced in the beginning of the letter and it's used again in chapter 2. Christians are pilgrims or exiles. 
In 1 Peter, an exile is one who has been chosen by God, consecrated for relationship with him and a life of devotion to the Lord Jesus. As such, they are distinct from the world in which they live, alienated from the values and priorities that characterize their society and culture. As elect exiles, Christians make up part of the the righteous remnant of God's people who do not truly belong to this world, but live in anticipation of their future heavenly home. Even as we await our future home, we are to endeavor to live a life that is pleasing and holy to the Lord. So we've now seen the three commands that are at the center of this passage. Live in hope, holiness, and reverence. But why? The rest of the passage answers that question. God's people are to live in hope, holiness, and reverence because of what has been accomplished in Christ. In verse 18, the word knowing introduces the reason for the preceding instructions. What follows will not only supply the grounds for the command in verse 18 to fear God, but it also supplies the reasons for the focus in this entire passage, the call to hope expressing itself in holy and reverent living. And so in other words, Christians are to be holy, hopeful, and reverent because of what Peter now tells us. He says, it's because you know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Verses 18 and 19 paint a beautiful contrast that reveals the high price of our redemption. Christians should live in a way, uh, the ways outlined above, because we know that our ransom and our redemption has been paid for by Christ. Like the blood of the Passover lamb for the Israelites in Exodus, we have been liberated from captivity through the blood of Jesus Christ. Formerly, we lived in ways that were futile and empty. The life of an unbeliever is not but sin and shame. The word ways here in verse 18 is the same as conduct from verses 15 and 17. Our previous way of life could not stand in greater contrast to the new way of living that we are called to in Christ. As high as this calling is, it is achievable because of the price that has been paid to purchase it. Gold and silver are valuable, but ultimately, wealth does not last. Moreover, money was unable to deliver us from bondage to sin. That's why in Isaiah 52.3, Yahweh says his people will be redeemed without silver. He's not going to redeem them with gold and silver. Instead, the price that secured our salvation was the infinitely valuable, imperishable, perfect blood of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, it's written, 
The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanses our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Hebrews 9.14 The blood of Christ is infinitely precious. According to verse 20, the Christ who ransomed us is the same Christ who has existed from before the foundation of the world. This plan of salvation was not an afterthought. Before the ages began, God foreknew him. Before history started, he determined that Christ would enter the world as God incarnate at a particular juncture in time and that he would redeem for himself a people. He would secure for them eternal and lasting grace. This is the Messiah that the Old Testament prophets and saints eagerly awaited and inquired about, as Peter writes in verses 10 10 through 12, chapter 1. It's our unique privilege as Christians to live in the last days, which began with Christ's life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. How glorious is it that he was made manifest for us. He was revealed for us. It's nothing of our own doing. It is only through him that we are believers in God. It's through him we're believers in God. Verse 21. Christ suffered and died, but God raised him from among the dead in the resurrection, in his ascension. He gave Christ glory. The final phrase gives the result of these mighty acts. The wonderful works of God in the life of Christ has led to our faith and hope in him. It's as a result of these things that we have faith and hope. It's not our own doing. It is what God has done in Christ. Christ's suffering and his subsequent glories are significant because as we'll see throughout the rest of the book, Christ's life provides the paradigm for all believers. Just as he suffered, so will his followers. But just as he was glorified, we will be too. Our hope is in the God who has already demonstrated his trustworthiness by raising Christ from the dead and giving him glory. And he has promised that he will do the same for all who are united to Jesus by faith. The message of this passage is really quite simple. God's people should live in hope, holiness, and reverence because of what has been accomplished in Christ. Even more straightforward, be hopeful, be holy, and be reverent because. As significant as the commands are, just as important is the reasoning which lies behind them. This is why the passage ends the same way it began, with the mention of hope. Our hope, holiness, and reverence should stem from a deep gratitude and wonder at what has already been done for us in the Son, Jesus Christ. Hope is the basis for a holy lifestyle. It's essential for Christian conduct. And since true hope anticipates the future blessings we will receive, it enables us to live in accordance with them. A life of holiness is one in which God is prized above all things, in which believers trust and hope in his goodness. 
So my brothers and sisters, live in hope, holiness, and reverence because of what has been accomplished in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, you are holy, holy, holy. Would you help us to understand what this means? Would you help us to grasp the significance of the holiness that is now ours because of Christ and the application of his blood by the Spirit to us? Would you help us to look forward, especially in in such days as we find ourselves now? Would we not be consumed by the present? Would our gaze be fixed on the hope that is to come when Christ returns. So help us to be hopeful. Help us to live out our holiness. Would we do so in reverence? All because of what you have done for us in Christ. As we set our eyes on this future hope, we pray that you would bring it to us. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.